The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Thanks. Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. It's good to see you. Yes. Great to be back for another week. Beautiful, um, beautiful Norwood. Yes, right, Father. Beautiful Norwood. Any prayer requests to begin tonight, Father? Oh, there are always many, many prayer requests. Uh, I'll just have to limit it to a, a, a few tonight, though. Um, Anna Rajagopal is still in need of prayers. And a little newborn child uh, named Gus, his life is hanging in the balance. Please uh, pray for him as well. And uh, Father Carly was taken back to the hospital today, and uh, I gather that he's uh, rather, well, quite, quite ill. Um, he was in uh, the hospital recently uh, for pneumonia, and just today, I understand, they, they found him on the floor, passed out, so I had to rush him back to the hospital. Um, there are a goodly number of other dear souls we know who are in need of prayers, but I urge prayers for them okay. Very in particular good. today. Very good. Okay, well, thank you, Father. We have a few different uh, topics um, tonight to discuss. First... Uh, I wanted to um, ask Father maybe just a few words on this um, um, apparently so-called recusant uh, position that some uh, would-be traditional Catholics have taken. It's it's kind of uh, come to our attention. We've we've heard from uh, from some some traditional Catholics who have uh, who've taken this this position, where um, I guess it's essentially <laughs> akin to the kind of the home aloner um, position, where they say that something to the effect that you know there's no valid authority right now um, in the in the Catholic Church and therefore there is no uh, actual jurisdiction that anyone can have and so no priests, uh, bishops can actually uh, function um, right now with no legitimate authority, no legitimate jurisdiction in place. Um, any comments, any thoughts on that position, Father? Well, actually, uh, Tom, it is something that I heard about uh, years ago. Um, and uh, just basically, uh, it, was, it was brought to my attention again uh, recently, as they say. And uh, I didn't make the connection at first between what I'd heard maybe 10 years ago and what I'm hearing now. But it's the same position uh, that I'm hearing about now. And it's still uh, in vogue uh, with some, some folks. And um, I think it's, uh, it's a question that needs more attention. Uh, I think if we discussed it here tonight, it would take up the entire program and more. So I intend to do a special program on that, just uh, personally uh, addressing that, that very question, because I, I think it gets to the heart of some important matters. And in answering that question, I think, I think several, several questions can be answered at once by getting to the heart of that question. Um, so anyway, I, I intend to... Uh, follow through on what you've brought up tonight with a, uh, a special program of what Catholics believe directed specifically at that question. Yeah, very good. <clears throat> matter of jurisdiction, matter of uh, 
you know, where the, the authority comes from for traditional Catholic priests and bishops to function. Okay, very good. We will look forward to that. Um, then, Father, we had a couple questions about Lent, actually, um, which you now begins tomorrow. Uh, one of our viewers wanted to know, uh, as far as their own personal Lenten resolutions that they make, would those, uh, would those bind under any pain of sin if, for example, they... Uh, made a resolution to give up sweets or whatever it may be, and then they end up at some point during Lent eating sweets, would that be any kind of sin? But... No, no, it wouldn't be. Um, if it's merely a personal resolution or a, a pledge or uh, whatever, uh, I mean, if it were a, a solemn promise made to God, like a vow, then obviously that would bind uh, under pain of sin. But most people, thoughtful people, when they give something up for Lent or, you know, make a, some kind of commitment to do something, a good work during Lent, they do not intend to bind themselves under pain of sin. Uh, they don't intend to make a bow of any kind. So, no, uh, the, uh, the, the resolutions we make during Lent to give up some, um, you know, some comfort or to, let's say, do some good work, uh, they do not bind under pain of sin. Okay. Not not only mortal sin, but even venial sin. Okay. Another question, Father. Uh, some of our viewers wanted to know if it was permissible for Catholics to attend uh, certain parties during Lent. One of our viewers in particular said that he's uh, actually been invited to parties during Lent. He's heard of other traditional Catholics going to parties during Lent. Is that an appropriate thing to do? It certainly is against the spirit of Lent to be celebrating uh, party fashion. I mean, after all... Uh, you know, even the, the law of fast and abstinence would um, tend to militate against parties which you know, often center around food and drink, right, and celebrating uh, by, you know, what we're eating and what we're drinking. Now, one might say, well, I, I, you know, have a day during Lent when I'm fasting and I have a day of partial abstinence. And so I'm entitled to have one full meal and I'm entitled to have that meal with meat. And so I'll just save that to party time. But again, um, generally that involves, uh, you know, not just taking the standard one full meal. Generally, parting involves um, um, eating to the point where one is full or beyond. Uh, but the whole idea of the festivity is inimical to the whole mentality and, and uh, spirit of Lent. Would it be a, a sin to go? Uh, well, it can, it can present, present the occasion of sin, of violating the, the fast and the abstinence, uh, uh, let's say overeating, and, um, and uh, but the, um, I think it's a bad example uh, to others. Uh, would it constitute a mortal sin in itself? No, I don't think so. I mean, one might say, well, we want a birthday party for my for my wife, my husband, you know, my parents, whatever, or we're so, we have something to celebrate. Well, then they should celebrate it on a Sunday. Sundays are always days of celebration. Uh, never days of fast and abstinence, never days of penance. Because every Sunday is uh, considered to be a kind of miniature Easter, Easter Sunday when we uh, recall the resurrection and we celebrate that. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, actually one should focus days of celebration, uh, one should focus celebrations on the Sundays. That's the spirit of Lent. They should avoid uh, giving parties, attending parties um, in celebration, especially of worldly things during during the Lent season. Okay, very good. Um, another interesting question, Father, what is the difference between apostles and disciples? Uh, well, disciples are learners and apostles are those who are sent to uh, to teach what they've learned, uh, basically. <clears throat> I mean, even the word um, discipuli, discipuli in Latin, meaning disciples, right? It has the sense of, well, little learners, literally, because the ulus or the uli on the end in Latin connotes a diminutive, like a little something, right? <clears throat> And, um, and in this case, uh, coming from the Latin word for a learner, to learn. So the little learners are the disciples who are gathered around the prophet or 
in this case, they're referring to our Lord as being, um, you know, the, the very Son of God teaching them. He's not just speaking on behalf of God, he is God speaking to them and teaching them. And so uh, the word disciples, uh, you know, is used generally to any follower of our Lord who is learning from him. And so when our Lord led the thousands of people into the wilderness uh, and fed them, uh, everyone who was there was really a disciple insofar as they were there to hear our Lord speak and to learn from him. But our Lord singled out certain of those disciples, um, and we know them as apostles, um, as they're called in Greek, and they, the, the significance of the word means that they are sent, they are sent forth, okay? And, um, and they are meant then to take the word that they have learned and to preach that word. As our Lord sent the apostles out uh, just moments before his ascension, with the words, going therefore, preach the gospel to all nations. Right? Um, and uh, that very fact singles them out as apostles. Now, early on in his public life, our Lord called his apostles and gathered them around. We read in particular about the gathering, uh, the, the summoning of St. Peter, uh, and St. Andrew, his brother, St. John, St. James, the sons of Zebedee, uh, they were essentially all called together. Then we read about St. Bartholomew or Nathan, Nathaniel, and his calling. And um, so our Lord assembled the, the 12 apostles, including Judas Iscariot. And these are the ones who are uh, especially close with him, uh, sp spending essentially night and day with him. And uh, our Lord was preparing them then to um, be the messengers, as it were, to the whole world uh, to preach the gospel. When at that that moment before our Lord's or rather before our Lord's ascension, when He sent them to, to preach the gospel, was that like a demarcation point where they kind of progressed from a disciple to an apostle? Well, no, He had actually called them specially before that. He With called it? Peter away from his boats, Andrew, James, and John. Tell them to leave those and come follow him. And they were called to leave everything behind and follow him. Not all the disciples were. I mean, the apostles were disciples because they were learning from our Lord. Uh, so uh, all the followers of our Lord who were learning from his teaching uh, were disciples. But only those 12 were actual apostles. Uh, because only those did he choose specifically to leave all things and come and uh, and follow him, and as, as a, their whole their whole life was about that, then following him, they left everything else behind. Okay, very good. Um, another viewer question about sacred scripture, Father. One of our viewers wanted to know if you could explain our Lord's words and the Gospel of Saint Mark, chapter thirteen, verse thirty-two. Um, where our Lord is, is speaking of the uh, the end times, the the second coming, the end of the world, and he he says that uh, essentially that uh, no man, that not even angels, uh, know that hour, and he even says that the Son Himself does not know that hour, but the Father only knows that hour. So if if that is true, Father, that uh, only God the Father knows that hour, that specific time of the end of the world, and God the Son does not, how can you explain that in light of the equality of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity? Uh, well, it's in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, and it's cross-referenced to uh, uh, also a passage in St. Matthew's Gospel too, right? When the apostles ask our Lord to tell them of uh, that time, I mean, when the, the end of the world would come, the judgment, they were asking. Of course, they'd be curious. And uh, when our Lord would come into his kingdom and, and so on. And um, <clears throat> that's when our Lord responded. That that is entirely in the control of the Father, and it is uh, known only to the Father and not the Son, right? And uh, uh, not to the angels in heaven. Do they not? They do not know it either. And uh, yeah, th there are those who uh, read that and say, "Well, does this mean that God the Son does not know uh, when the?" Uh, judgment is going to take place. <clears throat> but only God the Father knows, and God the Father is not even telling the Son. And as the fathers of the church pointed out, it wouldn't make sense for God the Son, 
who is going to come to judge all of mankind um, would not know and uh, would not know when that moment is going to be. And it would not make sense, of course, according to our faith, that God the Son, who is consubstantial with the Father and who is a one being, a divine being with the Father, uh, the second person of the blessed eternity would not know the answer to the question, especially since, as we read in the very beginning of St. John's Gospel, that he was in the beginning with God and it was God himself, um, that the Word was with God and the Word was God. So um, our Lord Jesus Christ, as God, certainly knew and certainly knows uh, that time appointed for the end of the world and for the judgment of mankind. He certainly does. But when, he, when the Gospel says, and when our Lord is quoted in the Gospel as saying, nor the Son, he's simply referring to the fact that as man, as man, it is not given to him to know. Now, one might say, well, wait a minute. There is one person who is God and man. Jesus Christ is the Son of God made man. So are you saying that as man, Jesus does not know, and as God, he knows? And so there's some sort of a disconnect, you know, between what he knows as God and what he knows as man. And, uh, and the answer to that question is no, there's no disconnect there whatsoever. But our Lord's point is, often he referred to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, commonly, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And he did so for very good reasons. <clears throat> okay, only at the very end um, was it that he revealed himself openly to all as the Son of God. The, the devils had learned this. <clears throat> the Pharisees, the Sadducees who wanted to condemn him were wanting to use this affirmation against him to secure his condemnation. And that is what they did before Pilate. They said, he's guilty of blasphemy and according to our law he must die because... He claims he makes himself out to be the Son of God. So the revelation of the fact that he is not only the Son of Man, which was rather obvious to all, and the revelation of the fact that he is the Son of God uh, was gradually un unfolded to the world until finally uh, he would be accused of it uh, before the governor appointed by the emperor of Rome and therefore accused of blasphemy and being worthy of death. But our Lord making that distinction himself, calling himself the Son of Man, makes it very clear that as man, it was not given to him to know. Not that he did not know, because as man, he is the, the, still the divine person, uh, made man. But his point was that according to his humanity, it was not something that he was given, that he did not know it by virtue of his humanity. He knew it by virtue of his divinity. But he did not know by virtue of his humanity when that moment would be. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of his humanity, it was not given to him to reveal it to men either. But it was something that was only privy to God himself. Yeah. So I hope I'm, I'm being clear on that. The point is that According to his human nature, he uh, was not given to know that, that that is not a human thing to know. It was a divine thing to know. Yeah. Uh, as a secret of the Father, so to speak, it, so to speak, the Son of God knew it, but he was, you might say, obliged to maintain that, that knowledge that was to be reserved to the Father. Very good. Okay. Thank you, Father. That's helpful. Um, another uh, question we had, um, one of our viewers said that they have uh, personally been invited to uh, various Lutheran organized um, rallies, he says, but even uh, some prayer campaigns he's heard of that these Lutherans have, have organized and uh, maybe for very good causes, um, whether it's pro-life, pro-family, pro-child, uh, causes or, or rallies. He said that um, he has personally been invited to these. He knows of other Catholics that have been invited to these things, but that are organized by Lutherans. Should a Catholic be attending such things? Well, it's something organized by Lutherans. 
I guess the question would then arise, is it a formally Lutheran event? Right. So that it's organized by Lutherans for Lutherans. Um, in that case, a Catholic should not attend because um, an event that organized by Lutherans for Lutherans would kind of be an indication that like, I'm, a, I'm a Lutheran, even though I'm only a Lutheran for a day, I'm a Lutheran to attend this. Um, if it's a Lutheran event that is meant to promote the Lutheran religion or a fundraiser for a Lutheran church, uh, then of course the Catholic should not take part in that. Cannot have any hand in promoting the Lutheran religion, which is an error, right? A falsification of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And if it's a fundraiser for a Lutheran church, then one actually could not uh, promote the Lutheran church, which fosters that that uh, that error, that heresy, right? So. Um, if, on the other hand, I mean, it's, it's something neutral and not a, let's say, a festival to raise funds for the Lutheran Church or uh, some Lutheran event that is based upon a Lutheran error in teaching. Um, but if, if it's just some sort of a, uh, maybe an Easter egg hunt in, in somebody's um, uh, you know, grandchild or someone who, let's say, has gotten to Lutheranism or something, uh, would, it be, would it be an error to attend that? One could argue, well, an Easter egg hunt is associated with, with Easter and the resurrection, and therefore, no, we should not take part in that. But I don't think anybody could gather from that that uh, it's anything other than just being there for the sake of one's grandchild. Even there, though, I, I would... Uh, you know, I, I, the the idea of mixed events like that, insofar as it is not only organized by Lutherans, but is uh, formally a Lutheran event, Catholics, um, Catholics should avoid it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as I say, if it's uh, just something like an ice cream social or something that they're having, um, and it's not something that's tied to the Lutheran religion, it would be okay to go yeah. for a family affair. Whatever. Yeah. All right. Um, if friends, for example, if friends invited them yeah. uh, to an ice cream social, um, I guess what's sticking in the back of my mind is, is it taking place at the Lutheran church or not? I mean, that's something that I don't know if your friend even mentioned. Um, if it's taking place off-site, you know, and it's like a park or something like that, uh, that's a very different matter than if it's taking place on the grounds of a Lutheran church. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I would say if it's just kind of a neutral uh, venue like a park, and they're having some kind of a, an outing or something like that, you know, something that really uh, doesn't connote uh, any... Uh, any you know concession to to a false religion, uh, and they're invited by friends, you know, because of their friendship. Again, you know, I, I don't see a problem with it. If it's on the grounds of a Lutheran church, or certainly in the buildings of a Lutheran church, if not the what they call the sanctuary, even in, a, in an audience, in a hall itself, uh, again, I, I would discourage a Catholic from being there. Okay, Very tell good. them I don't think they should go. Okay. All right. Um, we had a couple questions about hell, Father. Uh, one of our viewers asks, if Satan is in hell, how did he tempt Eve or even Christ in the desert? Well, Satan is in hell. Okay. But we know that there are evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. I mean, every time we pray the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, we say that. Uh, the evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. It's a mystery, but God can and does permit that. We see that at the very beginning of human history, when Satan disguised himself and entered the garden uh, under the guise of a serpent and tempted Eve, right? Um, God allows devils to tempt us. And um, the... Um, 
the fact is that the devil, wherever he may be, even, even if he's allowed to roam the earth, uh, that he still suffers the, the, the pains of hell. It's not as though he's, he escapes hell. You might say he takes hell with him insofar as he is always going to be suffering the pains of hell, especially the pain of loss. Um, and uh, that everlasting regret without remorse for what he's done. Um, that will always gnaw at him, wherever he may be, whatever he may be doing. But rather than, uh, you know, in, inciting him any, any repentance, it just makes him all the more angry and makes him all the more dedicated to our destruction because he, he's a, he really is a devil and he tends to blame everyone else for his misfortune, even God. You know, he'll blame uh, as though he got a raw deal. Uh, you might say he's the quintessential everlasting spoil sport who is consumed with self-pity. As though somehow uh, he, he um, you know, is, is a victim. I guess the, the idea we have today, in the world today, of victimization, victim, you know, everybody wants to be a victim. I, I think that's a very satanic mentality. It is. Not, don't just think it. It is a satanic mentality. Uh, whereas the real victim, who is the Son of God, who came to earth to be the sacrificial victim for us, actually was motivated by love and giving. And uh, it is to his everlasting glory that he accepted that mission from the Father to, uh, to come and be truly the victim for our redemption. Satan has a very, uh, has the opposite mentality. Uh, so uh, the idea of sacrificing himself for anything is outrageous to him. He wants everything sacrificed for his benefit. He wants to devour everything, as St. Peter says, 1 Peter 5. Um, so in any case, back to the subject, uh, um, so, so it, it is possible for uh, Lucifer, this very proud spirit who is an angel, it is possible for him to, even while he's suffering the pains of hell, to actually enter into the garden and to tempt Eve. And we know that's exactly what happened. Um, the, the question then might follow, well, when we pray in the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, we ask God to uh, cast into hell uh, the evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. Uh, those evil spirits are evil and they are suffering. But um, um, we, we ask God to cast them back or thrust them back into hell as though they were allowed to escape from hell. Again, you know, for a partial answer to that, we can go to the book of the Apocalypse, which talks about having uh, the angel with the, the keys to the abyss and the angels, uh, the fallen angels, the devils streaming out of the abyss and flooding the world, right? As though they'd been loosed from hell. They still carry the sufferings of hell, but they are, in fact, wandering the world and infesting the world at a very special time, in a very special way. So, yeah, it, it does happen. It can happen that God can let those devils actually, uh, you might say, leave the place of hell and uh, come into the world and uh, inflict their damage and wreak havoc upon the world as part of retribution for our own sins. Right? Um, so the idea that the devil is in hell, and that's true, the fact that God can let him come to earth and tempt us is a fact. And uh, it's something part of divine revelation that it's true. Mm. But one must not think that when he escapes hell, he doesn't suffer. That he's not still, in a sense, carrying the hell of that pain of loss within him. He always carries that even if he's allowed to wander the earth. 
Um, Father Amorth has something to say about this too, curiously enough. Father Amorth was the great exorcist in Rome for, you know, I don't know, 60, 70 years, I think, right? Uh, first assistant, and then he was the chief exorcist in Rome. And he relates, relates in his book, An Exorcist Tells a Story, that the, the devils, the, the possessing devils, would sometimes uh, almost groan under the weight of the exorcism, we suffer more here than we would in hell, or we, than we do in hell, right? I, I forget exactly how we put it there. Uh, we suffer more here than we would in hell. And that, again, indicates that they have loosed from hell, but they are still suffering. And they're suffering even more uh, during the exorcism, according to their own testimony, than they would in hell. Which raised questions. Uh, well, Father Morth raised the question in, in the book, An Exorcist Tells a Story. But why don't you simply let go of this person and go back to hell? Uh, which makes perfect sense. I mean, even to human beings, realize well if you'd suffer, if you suffer more here and now during the exorcism, than you would in hell. Then why don't you just let go of this person and go back to hell and suffer less? And the answer that Father Amorth uh, records as coming from the devils is truly diabolical. The answer was, we are here to make this person suffer. And that is truly devilish to say, we suffer more here doing this, but we are here on a mission to make this person, this other person, suffer. And that is why we are willing to suffer more for the sake of making that other person suffer. That's really devilish. You know? There are human beings who have that mentality, very devilish mentality. But there's another question also that Father Amorth doesn't raise, that it, uh, came immediately to mind, and that is, why, why would devils who are possessing a, a human being, <coughs> why would they suffer more here, as, as they were saying, and the ind indication is, here now, during the exorcism, uh, than we would in hell? And I think the answer then immediately arises, because here we are confronted with holy things. Here we're confronted with divine things. We're confronted with uh, sacramentals such as holy water, which God uses to baptize and uh, to justify from sin and sanctify souls. Here we're confronted by the love for God, which has brought an exorcist to us and others who are trying to rescue this soul from our power, who invoke the name of Jesus, um, Mary, and Joseph lovingly, and they're confronted with that. They're not confronted with that in hell. They're confronted with it here during an exorcism. And so, actually, it makes perfect sense that the, the way you're going to compel the, the devil, the possessing devil, to give up that possession and to let go, you have to make them suffer enough that they, they, they do let go. They're prying their their paws off of this person one by one, you know, finger by finger, as it were, <clears throat> to let go because they are compelled to do so because they, they are, uh, so much suffering is inflicted on them during the exorcism that they actually kind of lose their grip and they, they have to let go. Uh, and that suffering is because they are confronted with something holy. Uh, that also answers another question you know, about God's mercy. Uh, it tells us that the, the devils that are confined to hell, or that are condemned to hell, uh, if not confined there at sometimes, when God lets them wander the earth, but the devils that are condemned to hell would actually suffer much, much more if God compelled them to, to have the beatific vision, to stand before him in heaven, their suffering would be un unspeakably greater <clears throat> if God compelled them to come to heaven and face him forever in their condition. So even in creating hell for them and allowing them even to go to hell is, is actually a mercy. They, they suffer there, but they do not suffer anything near what they could and perhaps 
should suffer by all rights if they had to face God forever in heaven, wow. having rejected his love. Wow. Okay. There you go. Um, that's fascinating, Father. Another um, question we had, uh, I know you've kind of touched on this before, but um, if you could recap for us a little review. If uh, the viewer says, if hell is eternal separation from God, then how could Christ have descended into hell as we pray in the Apostles' Creed? Well, when our Lord died on the cross, his soul and body were separated, right? Now, we have to remember that as, as man, um, he is still the divine person, okay? And so the divine person of the Son of God remained with him body and soul. So uh, even in the body, which was bereft now of the, of the soul of Christ, the very definition of death, right? The separation of the body and the soul. Uh, even that body laid in the tomb, uh, the divine person of the Son of God remained there, remained with the body and with the soul. And the soul of Christ went from that cross to what we know as the limbo of the just, okay? We know that there were uh, noble souls of the Old Testament who were actually in the state of grace, right? They were actually saved by faith, their faith in the coming Redeemer. They had faith in the coming Redeemer. They had hope in the coming Redeemer. And they loved the coming Redeemer enough to be faithful to him <clears throat> even before he came. And that Redeemer is the very same Redeemer that you and I know as the Son of God, now come, crucified, risen, and now glorified in heaven. They believed in him, they hoped in him, and they loved him even before he came in the Old Testament. But before he died on the cross, they could not enter heaven. So when they died, they went to a place of reservation. They were uh, a place where they were reserved. Souls were reserved called the limbo of the just. Limbo, even now in the English language, indicates a, kind of a, a state of waiting, waiting for something else, you know, um, kind of a waiting room in a sense. <clears throat> and uh, they were the just souls of the Old Testament. They could not enter heaven until Christ himself came for them from the cross. When the sacrifice had been offered, the gates of heaven were then opened to them. Uh, and that's what the soul of Christ did. He went to them and found their spirits, their souls, in that limbo of the just. And our Lord uh, went, as St. Peter says, to announce to them the news of the redemption. That's what St. Peter says in uh, letter the you know epistle of saint peter he, he talks about that uh christ going to the dead and preaching the gospel that is revealing the words of the redemption to them and um now you know our lord actually obliquely indicated this in a rather curious way one day he was being accused by the pharisees and the sadducees of having cast out a devil by the power of the devil, right? They accused him of being a Samaritan. They accused him of being possessed. And uh, that's when our Lord said, well, if the devil is casting out the devil, then his kingdom certainly is at an end, right? And, uh, but our Lord said, if it is by the power of God that I cast out the devil, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. <laughs> As though, uh, if the... If, as if to say, the kingdom of God has come upon the devil and cast him out. Now the kingdom of God has come upon you. <clears throat> and kind of putting him in, a, in a, the same category, in a way, as the devil, you know, uh, the accuser. But in the course of that conversation, if you call it a conversation, that, 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 that uh, confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, they were appealing to the fact that they were the children of Abraham. And our Lord talked about. He said that they were the, the children of the father of lies, the devil, rather than real children of Abraham. But he, he talked about Abraham's and in a, in a very familiar way. He said to them, Abraham, your father, according to the flesh, um, 
saw my day. He saw it and rejoiced. And that statement of our Lord that Abraham witnessed the coming of Christ into the world, when Abraham had died 1,800 years before, um, that really got their attention. And they said, what? You're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Well, what our Lord had said was, Abraham saw my day. Our Lord didn't say, I saw Abraham, but that's how they came back at him. Have you seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. But our Lord said, Amen, I say to you, Abraham, before Abraham was made, I am. And they understood that our Lord was taking upon himself the sacred name of God, Yahweh, I am who am. And they picked up stones to stone him to death in the very spot there. But our Lord's reference to Abraham, whom, as I said, had been dead for 1,800 years, seeing the day that our Lord came into the world and rejoiced to see that he'd come. Again, I mean, this indicates that Abraham is somewhere, that he's, he's aware, he knows what's happening. At least he was informed about the fact that the Savior had come. The Savior who had been prophesied to come through him into the world as one of his own descendants. And so Abraham was given to know this and rejoice at the fact that the redemption was at hand for them. Uh, and of course, when our Lord, our Lord's soul did leave the cross, leave the, the body of our Lord on the cross and went to the limbo of the just, uh, Abraham was among those, perhaps first among those, whom our Lord found there, and who certainly was anticipating seeing him, and no doubt rejoiced, as they all did rejoice to see him. Now, then that raises the question, what is the limbo of the just then, part of hell? Well, in the creed, that's how we refer to it. Uh, when we talk about our Lord dying on the cross, uh, we refer to him as having descended into hell. And that's where he went, to the limbo of the just, to announce to the just, to reveal to the just that the sacrifice had been made, the gates of heaven were now open unto them. And the limbo of the just was referred to as hell. And it was referred to as hell because it was, well, first of all, part of another world, as they knew it at that time. But it was a part where those who were there were still barred from heaven. That they were, they were still barred from heaven because the, the gates of heaven were still closed against them. And to that extent, the limbo of the just was referred to as hell, where souls went who were still barred. Even though they were not condemned, they were still barred from heaven by sin until the redemption had been completed, as it was. And only then were they released from that. So to that extent, even the limbo of the just was referred to as hell because of that closing of the gates of heaven that remained until that moment that Christ himself entered there to deliver those souls. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, I think it's fascinating, Father, just to, uh, you know, we pray the Apostles' Creed every day, how, how you can, one could easily just pass over that, um, mm -hmm. that one, that one uh, phrase in there, but there's so much behind it, so much to meditate on, so much fruit for meditation there. Mm -hmm. um, it's very good. Thank you, Father. But uh, just one uh, final topic, maybe, Father, one of our viewers wanted to know if you could uh, perhaps discuss from a Catholic perspective the the idea of intellectual property, and uh, if it's, uh, again, from a Catholic perspective, is this is it a moral thing? Is it acceptable to patent uh, intellectual property? Is it is it okay? Is it permissible to to profit, um, say, off of intellectual property where this isn't actually a physical, tangible good or a, a product or a service that one is selling, um, but rather just some kind of intellectual property, maybe an, an idea or something? Um, is it moral from a Catholic perspective for one to patent that and say profit off of it? Uh, the answer is yes, it is. It is because, it, well, one can have a piece of uh, land, uh, an area of land that I say claim ownership to. And um, it could be the person actually put no, um, you know, toil of his own or effort of his own. He could have just inherited it, just found it and claimed it and said, well, this is mine. And in fact, if it didn't belong to anyone, 
a person could actually make a claim to it and say, okay, I'm staking a claim uh, to this land and I'm calling it my land and I'm having it legally registered and all the rest. So everybody has to recognize my right to, to possess and use and control this land and sell the land if I want to. Um, but with intellectual property, it's somewhat different in the sense that uh, intellectual property is, is supposed to be something that you actually put your your effort into. Now, somebody, I mean, could could uh, go through the property of, of staking a claim, clearing the land, and uh, buying the land, and, and also, so he made a sacrifice. He invested something of himself into this real property. But with intellectual property, one has to do the same thing. Uh, it involves um, actually devising something that is new, that is useful, and um, that actually could be so beneficial that people would want, well, would want it, would want to use it. If somebody has invested his time, his energy, his expertise, knowledge, and um, uh, let's say in inventing something, in coming to uh, some new thing that could actually serve as a as a product of his of his own mind and knowledge and energy and effort, then he does have a certain right to it, um, and um, it is essential, actually, in a sense, to um, all of our modern. Well, even our ancient technology, all of our human technology is uh, fueled, you might say, by that ability to, to gain by the effort and the work that you put into something, uh, for which you deserve some kind of reward and remuneration for the effort you make. I mean, uh, we're not communists, in which everything belongs to everybody, so so so-called. Right, and nobody owns anything. That's what the uh, uh, that's what the communists of uh, today would have. You know, uh, that nobody owns anything or has any rights to ownership of anything. Uh, the very essence of you might call capitalism, but capitalism in the truly moral sense, because there's a very immoral capitalism which inevitably leads to socialism and communism, oddly enough. But capitalism in the true, in the finest sense, involves somebody actually being rewarded for his efforts and his labors and having a right to the fruits of these things. Um, that's where inventiveness comes from. That's, that's why we have the inventions we have, because people have applied their... Uh, their knowledge, their efforts through experimentation, um, which might take, you know, years and years of labor, thought, research, and as I say, experimentation to refine uh, some invention that is a benefit to, you know, not only oneself, but to you know, the whole population, you know, maybe all mankind could benefit from this thing. And people needed incentive to do that. They, they needed incentive other than mere altruism to invest that time and that effort to know that there, there's going to be some sort of compensation and uh, reward for that. And this is a divine thing. Remember, our Lord is the one who comes in the gospel and talks about reward. He talks about the reward. Uh, um, and he, he's talking about the supernatural reward of everlasting life. <clears throat> but he's using that idea of the premium, the reward, to, for the effort that is made. St. Paul, just in Septuagesima, is talking about fighting, fighting for an imperishable crown, running the race for the imperishable crown, and so on. So again, that reward is, is very important. Uh, even in the gospel, that idea of striving and laboring and gaining. And um, our Lord uh, and God himself, when he put us here, he said, not only to increase, multiply, and fill the earth, give me human life, 
but he wanted us to cultivate the earth. He wanted us to use our human intelligence, which was given to us in his own image, to actually develop the potentialities of the earth. Um, so that, that idea of intellectual property is a real thing for us. It enables us to develop the potentialities of the things of the world, uh, to serve God, and, uh, and not to create an, a paradise on earth or to defeat the sentence of sin, but in order to uh, alleviate suffering and to improve life, for the purpose basically of, of uh, appreciating life and, and loving God more. That's what it's supposed to be for. Um, so there, there's nothing wrong with intellectual property and uh, laying claim to the fruits of my labors, my intellectual labors, and wanting to be compensated for those intellectual labors that are for the benefit of others. Could could this idea be abused, though, Father? Because we see a lot of um, things today. I'd like to get your opinion on this. Where um, you know we hear sometimes today about even certain phrases. Uh, being being trademarked, and uh, sometimes even uh, I just recently heard, heard the case of a of a uh, specific color um, that that was I guess copyrighted by by a company, and so you know they have these phrases, colors even that uh, you know if if someone else is, is is infringes on this copyright and they use the certain color, they use the certain phrase, um, they can they might have to to pay the patent holder. Or whoever holds the copyright of that is, is would you say that that something like that is an abuse? It, it sounds ridiculous, and it sounds like it's driving it to extremes. <clears throat> anything can be can be abused. Anything, right? Um, we can take any good thing and we can um, abuse it and almost make a mockery of it. And I think that's a case of that. Right. You know, you get these these people who, uh, um, as you say, want to. Uh, patent the human genome, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, this is something that is the common patrimony of the human race. Uh, a specific color, as though that color doesn't exist anywhere in the world, as though I discovered this color. Um, that's quite absurd, you know, and that is and a color that is unique yeah. to me uh, that I've developed. But the fact that, uh, you know, this color exists in nature and, and it can be duplicated and people have a right to the colors, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, the same with the phrase. I mean, you know, it's like patenting certain words. You know, you, yeah. you get to the point where nobody can use this word without paying me royalties. Well, at that point, it, it, it certainly approaches the absurd. There, there was another um, thing I just heard recently, Father, if I understand correctly, that, that some, of the, uh, some of the very large corporations today, like um, Monsanto or something like that, they might own a patent to uh, maybe certain certain seeds or, you know, to, to corn or grain or something. Is that, is that okay? Is that acceptable? Well, unfortunately, uh, they, they develop patents to these, these certain seeds. They genetically altered them. And uh, they've altered them to make them uh, maybe uh, resistant to rot or resistant to insects. But they've also... Uh, you know, programmed into the genome that they, they cannot be used to, to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So the plants that grow from those seeds then uh, do not have any value to reproduce the crop. And uh, then we've even had cases where, let's say, some seeds have blown into the fields of other farmers who have not used their product, and now they want to sue them because yeah. their seeds have invaded the... Whereas it's actually the farmer whose whose crop was invaded by the, this foreign element who might well be suing the other co the company that produced them for invading their land you know but uh yeah it's it's uh you know it's it's up to well government ideally you know should be just and we know how that works <laughs> um any more than men themselves human beings are just should be just right um but um in the world today, unfortunately, uh, uh, well, you know, we, we talk about justice and we talk about justices for human beings, and we see how that's working for us right now. And um, they are, unfortunately, also often 
not only partisan of uh, big corporations and big money, but they're partisans of original sin too, in the sense that they have their their own biases and their own flaws and uh, their own political, um, shall I say, uh, um, agendas to pursue even on the bench. And I, I don't think it's a revelation to anybody to point that out. Um, so, you know, the laws depend upon people making them and uh, depend upon uh, enforcement. They depend upon the justicism judging compliance or non-compliance with the law, and they depend upon the executive power to enforce them. <clears throat> In all cases, we're dealing with human beings, flawed human beings. And um, yes, we can make unjust laws, we can enforce them, we can judge them unjustly, and we can enforce them unjustly. Um, and any one of those would be a breakdown of the whole system mm-hmm. and end up with you know, more or less gross injustice. Um, but yes, the patent laws and the the laws themselves can be unjust in their, you know, how they actually are applied. They can be unjust in the way they're judged and they can be unjust in the way they're enforced. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing quite a bit of that these yeah. days. Yeah. M- maybe um, maybe one, one final question, Father. I, I uh, just recently heard um, this, um, this example, someone posted of... Uh, where if you had a, um, let's say, a, a music artist who had some kind of musical performance um, that they uh, they profited off of, maybe it was an original uh, composition, and, uh, you know, they, they copyrighted, trademarked that, and profited from it, and, and rightly so, but is there any kind of limit to that? Because the case um, that was put forth was if a, uh, if a musical performer, an artist, he puts on some kind of performance, obviously um, provides a service and should be compensated for that. Um, but say that that performance is recorded and then each subsequent sale of that recording, um, mm-hmm. the artist profits from that mm-hmm. kind of just, just forever. For world he's <laughs> yeah. Is, uh, would that, would that be a moral thing to do to profit off of, uh, off of this one performance <laughs> over and over and over again? Um, they're not really producing anything new. They're not adding any new value. To the marketplace, they're not putting forth any kind of new service or product. It's just this one-time product that they they produced, this one service they produced at this one, uh, say, concert, and then they just keep profiting off of this over and over. Well, over I mean, again. even even apart from what they're singing and the the the, the moral value of the yeah, concert, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it could be uh, the performance of a you know some classical piece of music or even. Um, the Stavart Mater of, uh, of, uh, of Borjak or yeah, someone yeah. like that. It could be something good. It could be the Passion of St. Matthew that they're doing. So nowadays, when you think about concerts, you think about, True. you know, immoral <laughs> venues yes. and, and all that. But, I mean, even if it's something in itself that is good and right and even conducive to, you know, thinking holy thoughts, you know, sacred music, would an orchestra or a uh, a vocalist have the right and ongoing to receive royalties for that performance? And I think that um, generally, I think the moral theologians would say, and at least I would say, for what it's worth, that yes, they would, uh, because that is their particular talent. That is their talent that they're using to make this recording. <clears throat> And not everybody has an automatic right to hear their performance. You know, there are people who might have paid to get get access to the hall or whatever to uh, be able to be within earshot, you know, and hear the performance. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that everybody else in the world automatically has a right, has an automatic right to hear the performance too, just because there were people who paid to hear it for the first time. So why wouldn't, if, if people could be charged an entry fee to get into a theater or a, a, a concert hall to hear the performance, why couldn't someone also be expected to pay a fee to hear the results of that performance if, if they didn't, just because they didn't get into the hall, but they, they could get access to it another way? Does that automatically give them the right to have it and to listen to it? 
I don't think so. No. Uh, I think the fact that they gathered there, they gathered the orchestra, that they had the vocalist there who practiced and has that God-given talent to sing it beautifully. And not everyone has that. I think there's something extraordinary that is a personal investment of the musicians, the conductor, <coughs> excuse me, even the composer, you know, and the vocalists and so on that is, is worthy of compensation going forward. I think that is a unique property. Once they perform that, it remains their unique property. Um, but again, again, you know, that, that can be abused. You can take something that should be basically in the public domain, and that by its very nature is meant for the benefit of mankind. For example, suppose somebody were to come up with an actual cure for cancer, for pancreatic cancer or lung cancer, whatever. And one would say, oh, good, you know, this is a product that will spell the life and death, make a difference of life and death for tens of thousands of people, you know, and we have them where we want them now. People will pay anything to get this. So, you know, it costs us so much to make this, but let's uh, inflate the price because people are desperate to get this medication to save their lives. That would be very evil to do that. Very evil to do that. And uh, would, they, would somebody who would have developed that have the right to be compensated for their efforts and pains and costs? Well, yes. If they weren't, they might not just be moved by the goodness of their hearts to produce it. Um, so there are definite, you know, amounts of labor and, uh, and effort that went into producing this and the production costs are there, but to expect any more from that, uh, to take advantage as it were, uh, of people because of the great need would be a very evil thing. Yeah. Okay. And again, I mean, in the gospel, uh, well, throughout the, the scriptures, I mean, this is condemned. It's, it's all basically um, under kind of an extension of the idea of usury, taking yeah, advantage of people in need uh, to okay. aggrandize oneself unjustly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is a, uh, an interesting discussion, Father. It's, uh, we've already gone a little bit over time on tonight's program, but I guess um, very briefly, any words in closing? Well, we are ready to celebrate Lent, a celebration of Lent. Uh, the words celebrate and Lent often don't seem to go together. But uh, to celebrate our Lord's life, yes. And we talk about celebrating his life and death and resurrection um, and ascension. At the Mass, we celebrate all, the, all these things. Uh, we celebrate, in celebrating this, we're celebrating his love. We're celebrating God's love for us. And we need to think of Lent as that, a celebration of the love uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a divine love and the human love of his sacred heart. We are celebrating that. And as we go through Lent, we observe the fast and the abstinence of Lent and make the little, well, it's hard to even call them sacrifices because often they amount to no more than really inconveniences. Maybe a little bit of discomfort essentially, uh, uh, of the fasting and so on. But in terms of real sacrifice and real suffering, no. Uh, we tend to exaggerate the, the burden uh, of that um, from what it really is, just inconvenience and maybe a little bit of uh, discomfort into as though that were major, major thing that we're dealing with. But we, we need to focus on our Lord. Uh, and during this time, especially, the growing conflict between um, our Lord and his truth and uh, the opposition that came against him and uh, the, the malice that he had to, to deal with for our sake to preach the gospel and um, then finally, that uh, malice erupting into beyond hostility, even into uh, the determin determination to, to crucify him. 
we need to follow him closely in that. That's why our Blessed Lady is uh, so important to us during this time, because uh, Our Lady wants to take us in hand, take us by the hand and lead us. Uh, She is the one who wants to to lead us forward with her son throughout Lent. Um, She is the one who suffered, you might say, the first Lent in enduring all of this with our Lord, following him as she did faithfully throughout his public life, even to the very foot of the cross itself. And so um, we, we stay close to our Blessed Lady, Our Lady of Sorrows, during this time. But uh, I do recommend that um, people uh, take to heart the uh, epistle of this uh, Quinquagesima Sunday. Uh, that's St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13. It's only 13 verses, and yet it is kind of a compendium of the entire moral theology of the Catholic Church and a statement of what is necessary to save one's soul. It's a synopsis of what is necessary to save one's soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Our students have to memorize that in order to graduate. And I'd recommend that everybody, uh, all of our Catholic people, get a copy of that. They'll find it as the Epistle of Quinquagesima Sunday. Uh, make a copy of it, carry it with you. Uh, I recommend that you read it every day, not just read it, but pray it every day with the intention of memorizing it. If you, if you actually pray it every day, by the time uh, of Good Friday, uh, you will know it by heart. And then, of course, learning it by heart is the easy part. Living it is the hard part. <laughs> so, But at least if we if we learn it, we have the hope that we can also live it and put it into practice. So I recommend that as a pious practice during Lent. Also, of course, spiritual reading on the subject of our Lord's uh, passion is always very important during Lent. And um, also making some special offering, giving up something, uh, as our very first question asks, right? Uh, Does it bind into pain of sin? No, but it's a goodwill offering and a token of our willingness to, you know, mortify ourselves. Very important. Uh, it has the benefit of training our will also, strengthening our wills for good and against what is wrong, what is evil. So all of that, there's much more, but I think we better leave it at that for the time being, lest we uh, uh, overwhelm people. Uh, at least that gives some ideas of uh, pious practices during Lent that would yeah. be helpful. Yeah. Well, very good. Thank you. Father, very blessed Lenten season to you. Well, uh, Tom, I wish you the same. Blessed Lenten season to you. And uh, of course, to all of our viewers and listeners, God bless you all. God bless you, Father. Thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.